This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael Glenn Moore. If you have an interesting life story and would like to appear on the show, please drop me a note at inacitylikeyours at gmail.com. Also, join our Facebook page at In a City Like Yours Podcast to receive notices of new releases and other info. Now, please welcome today's guest. Good evening. My name is Nita. Um, most of my friends call me Onyx. And um, I hail from the west side of Chicago, currently still in the greater Chicagoland area, just hiding out in the suburbs, trying to keep a low profile. My life, actually, has been a pretty, pretty interesting thing from dealing with loss at a very early age. I lost my mother at two years old. And being raised by a single dad who was military trained, special forces, needless to say, my childhood was quite interesting. It was filled with military maneuvers, learning about weapons, learning survivalist techniques, all while growing up in the inner city. And I've had a number of events in my life that have impacted my trajectory, but I think the most influential moment in my life came back in late October, early November of 1999. Everybody was bracing for the Y2K bug. I mean, people were thinking the computers were gonna shut down, everything was gonna crash, and civilization was just going to end. So it was a stressful time. I was a young single mother. I was only 20, what, 24 years old, almost 24 years old. And um, I was working in retail management, just thinking, hey, I'm gonna change the world. I, I like to work with people. I like to interact with different people. So I took a job in retail management, thinking this way I could help the community by you know, hiring people from the area, things of that nature. I could better myself, provide a, a, a stable household for my son, as well as you know, ingrain in him a good idea of work ethic and what it takes to be successful. So at the time, I literally worked managing a gas station at night. I would go into work about midnight and get off about six or seven in the morning. And because it was 24 hours, I could do cash, paperwork, banking, everything on the overnight shift is dead. There's no vendors. And I would always have a cashier there with me. So I was being a manager and they were doing everything else, making coffee, doing the stuff that they do while I placed orders and just, you know, lay out schedules and do things like that. Well, this particular night, this was routine. I had a day job that I reported to at 9 a.m. as an administrator. So I had a very, very full plate. I pretty much operated at that point in my life with lockstep military precision. Um, 
I didn't do a lot of dwaddling. I didn't waste a lot of time. I was one of those people that I had deadlines. I had a list of checks and balances. And this particular night was no different. I grabbed something to eat, went into the gas station, worked my day job, went into the gas station, greeted my third shift employee, who was an older gentleman. I was in my 20s. He was, well, he at least appeared to be well into his 50s. He was a new hire. He had been with me for less than a month. So he was done with training, but because he worked third shift, he would see me a lot more than some of my other employees would because I was there for majority of his shift. He was 11 to seven. I would be there like 12 to six. And then sometimes if I had a break in my day or if I was off from my office job, I would pop up, you know, hey guys, how y'all doing? Here's my beautiful face, yay. And um, all that was working. The guy had a number of customer compliments. He's so polite. He has all the coffees ready in the morning. All the stuff a manager wants to see. I was actually thinking of promoting him to my assistant manager from just cashier. I mean, he was older, he was stable, he was very professional. Never really got off into the personal lives of my employees. I'm friendly, but I'm not that friendly. Like there's a very fine line for them to understand that, hey, I may be young, but I'm your boss. So I kept it professional. And this one particular night seemed like all the others, you know, he, um, you know, he came in when I got there, I greeted him, said, hey, how you doing? How's the shift going? We made idle chit chat. He made me a cup of coffee and I'm just sitting at my desk, which is right by the uh, front counter area. And I'm just typing away. I'm doing some reports, some accounting figures and stuff like that. And the craziest thing, the life-changing moment was, I remember glancing at the clock and it was about 2.25 a.m. I remember that because in order for my cashiers to get out of the cashier booth, to get out onto the sales floor or to go to the restroom, they have to walk past my desk. So they kind of got to say, excuse me and shimmy by because it's a very small um, gas station. He said, excuse me, hey, boss lady, I'm going to run to the bathroom. Can you watch the register? Sure thing. I looked at the clock. It's 2.25 in the morning. I'm like, oh, no problem. We're going to be dead. I'll just sit here and just watch to see if anybody comes in. That was at 2.25. I remember at about, I want to say it had to be after 7 a.m., I awakened in an ambulance. That five hours four and a half, five hours worth of time. At that immediate moment, I could not account for what was told to me, what was relayed to me. And one of my joys of working in retail is when you work at a neighborhood gas station, you have regulars. And I had a regular customer. She was the sweetest little old lady, Miss Dottie, bless her soul, was like, I, she looked very old, but I don't want to make her older than she was, but I think she had to be in her late 70s maybe early 80s i mean she was older but she got around and she literally would come in my gas station twice a day once on the first shift and once on the third shift and she would come and get a 32 ounce diet pepsi no ice from the fountain machine and a pack of pal mal or pal mall however people say them with no filters this lady was the sweetest thing um i made it a point to be nice to everybody and i guess that was part of my military bringing, upbringing with my dad. And I think that was a good thing because Miss Dottie saved my life that night. Um, 
So from what I was told, what happened was she came up to the gas station at her regular time at about 2.33 a.m. Why this lady is up and walking to the gas station that time of night is beyond me. But she would come about 3, you know, so I guess she came about 3 a.m. or so. And she said she noticed that the lights were out. So she just said, okay, well, maybe they went to the bathroom or they ran to the store or something like that. Because sometimes we'd have to leave and run to another gas station if we ran out of something or something. Very rare instances in which we'd lock the station down. So this is what she thought was going on. She said, no harm, no foul. She went on back home. But she came back a couple of hours later, because I guess at that point she was totally out of cigarettes and um, she needed her soda. And when she came back, she noticed that my car was parked over on the side of the building, but the lights were still out. So she decided to put her face up against the glass and look through the glass. And because the gas station was so small, you could literally look through the store and see the door to the back room. And so as she's looking, she notices the door to the back room is open and she sees an arm, which turned out to be my arm. So without even thinking about her own safety, without thinking if maybe they had gotten robbed and they were in here dead, she didn't care. She just barged right on into the gas station. It was completely dark. And she found me laying on the floor, naked, bloody, unconscious. And she literally like a grandmother would, I guess is what the paramedics told me. She held my head in her lap and called 911 and stayed there with me until the police arrived on the scene. Um, crazy thing was, is I kept asking them, you know, is my employee okay? Is my, and I kept mentioning him by name. Um, you know, is he okay? Is he okay? I don't know what happened. And they, and I was so confused because they kept telling me, ma'am, there was nobody in the store with you. There was nobody in the store with you. And I'm like, no, he was at work. Now I'm frustrated and I'm virtually hysterical because I'm thinking something happened to my employee. It wasn't until the police showed up at the hospital after, you know, they went to my store and they, I guess they sent some detectives or whatever over to the store. My district manager met them there, let them in. And then they came to take my statement. And that's when they dropped the bombshell in my lap that ma'am, there was no employee in the store with you because it was your employee that did this to you. I was absolutely floored. I could, I could not understand what they were saying to me. It was almost like when you see a movie and the person looks at a long hallway and all of a sudden it gets super long. It was one of those things. Like I felt like I literally was in the twilight zone. Like, what do you mean my employee did this to me? No, my employee was a little old man. He's real sweet. Heck, I'm probably taller than him. Like he, no. And then they proceeded to run down everything to tell me that my security tape was missing. Because back in the 90s, late 90s, we didn't have DVR systems in retail operations. We just had a, VA, a VCR. And it literally sat unlocked right there on my desk. So he just happily, after he did whatever he did, or possibly, couldn't have been before, because I was sitting at my desk, um, he took the tape. He, um, how they knew it was him is because, one, the tape was missing. Two, there was no money missing out of the registers. No merchandise was missing. Maybe a couple of packs of cigarettes. And um, they, the, the store was like the lights were turned out. A robber would have just robbed you and left. But we weren't robbed. Everything was still there and the tape was missing. So 
they looked around, they realized the schedules were missing and the store phone listing. Um, what I do as a manager, I type up a list of everybody's phone numbers and I post it in the little wait, the little break area so that if somebody needs to call another employee to tell them to come to work or something like that, they had each other's phone numbers. Well, the phone listing was missing, which kind of signaled the police that this was somebody who was here. And then they proceeded to tell me the extent of all my injuries. And the injuries were pretty extensive. A lot of rehab, a lot of recovery to um, get better. I did not tell my family because as I stated you know, before, my dad was military, so he was a little cuckoo to say the least. So I was not gonna tell him. The only person that I let know was my 74 year old grandmother because we, we owned a building and she lived right downstairs under me. She watched my son while I worked a lot. So I knew she was gonna see me. I was gonna have to explain the bruises and stuff like that. Um, so I did tell my grandmother. And then about a month after telling her, I found out that I was with child. This wouldn't have been a normal shock <laughs> for a regular 23 year old woman, but I was a 23 year old out lesbian. So me coming up pregnant, there was no way that I could hide that. But I come from a devoutly religious family. So I took it to the only person I knew to take it to, which was my grandmother. And we had a sit down heart to heart. And she told me just period, point blank, look, baby, the creator doesn't put more on you than you can handle. And we don't believe in ending pregnancies and we don't believe in adoption. So looks like you're gonna have a baby, dear. I was devastated, like absolutely devastated because my only thought process was I had one child. My child at the time, 99, he was five going on six years old when I found out I was pregnant. And his father had been my only boyfriend, only partner, anything. I was considered a good girl. So I definitely didn't want to have to look at a child that came from someone who tried to kill me. But I trusted my grandmother. I trusted the process. And I said, you know what? If granny says I can do it, I can do it. Not a problem. I'm going to keep it going. That's what I thought. That's what I thought I was going to do. But the universe had a, another set of plans for me. The universe decided, nah. So in late December, Oh, it was actually the first couple of days of January, actually. We made it into Y2K. And I was at work in the middle of the night yet again. And uh, I got up to go walk and do something. Mind you, I was still reporting to work at the exact same gas station. The police had not caught this guy. And we're about a month and a half, two months later. I found out I'm pregnant. I'm still going to work. And um, this one particular day I'm at work and I get up to leave my desk to do something and I had on tan pants. And my cashier says to me, hey, um, why don't you take the day off and go relax? You know, you've been through a lot. I mean, I told my employees everything I had been through. And I said, you know what, y you're right. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and take a day off and I go home. Well, when I get home that night, I was gonna go to work. You know, I went through the whole day, saw my grandmother, saw my family, dealt with family, still dealing with being pregnant. And the universe has a way of doing things. 
So that night I was supposed to go to work, but my grandmother told me she didn't feel well, so she really didn't want to watch my son. So I said, okay, well, you know what? I took the day off, you know, anyway, so I don't need to go in. I can have my assistant take care of some stuff. In the morning, no problem. I stay home. I have my own child in the bed with me, and I'm awakened by a family member screaming, you got to come downstairs, you got to come downstairs. They're taking grandma to the hospital. What? The one night I didn't go to work. Like, wow, when does that happen? So we rush her to the hospital, find out she had an aneurysm. They run in the family. So was it expected? No. Um, was it devastating? Definitely. Impactful? Tremendously. Uh, my grandmother stayed in a coma for about two weeks until I was able to sneak my son up to the hospital to see her. It was almost as if she was waiting for him. In two weeks, she hadn't responded to anyone, not myself, not my siblings. And one of the nurses at the hospital was a neighbor. And she told me, your grandmother waiting on that baby. You got to bring that baby up here. And I'm like, they're not going to let me bring a five-year-old to ICU. She said, well, I'm the shift nurse tonight. Bring him up here. So we snuck my son in and he crawled in the bed with her and he whispered in her ear about the stories that she needed to tell him and that he needs her to come home. She squeezed his hand. A tear came out of her eye, which were closed. Her eyes were closed. She was like, I don't know if she was in a medically induced coma or if the aneurysm had just rendered her unconscious. But she had been unconscious for two weeks. And she cried that one tear and squeezed my son's hand. And we left and we took him home. Within, I want to say less than an hour, the nurse called us and let us know that they had no brain activity. We go to the hospital. I take my father and his brother and sister, and um, they make the decision to go ahead and take her off life support. She subsequently passes. And later on that day, it's a house full of people. So we're six, seven hours into the passing of my grandmother. And um, everybody's just down. And I have to be the go-to person for everybody, but I'm dealing with my own demons that nobody knew about except my granny. So I got a lot of dilemmas going on. So I, I kissed my father and I said, hey dad, when I get back, I'll finish writing the obituary, but I gotta go to work. I, I, I gotta go clear my head. Him not knowing what happened at work, he's thinking, okay, my daughter's just a workhorse. She gets it from me. So I go to work. While I'm at work, I'm up, I'm moving around, and I think I was up on a ladder or something. And my employee tells me, hey, I don't want to alarm you, which, you know, <laughs> basically means I don't want to alarm you, but I'm about to say something that's going to alarm you. And I'm like, what? And she says, well, Miss Nita, the, the back of your pants are covered with blood. I say, oh. Okay, I know what's happening. Can you grab me some towels out of the storage shed? And she grabs some towels like, why? I said, because I got to drive myself to the hospital, but I have tan interior. I'm not going to mess up my car. So I laid the towels down. I, I'm just that focused when it comes to something. I drove myself to the hospital and um, went in and I told them specifically, hey, 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 I need this procedure done because I'm actively experiencing a miscarriage. So they rushed me back, they prepped me, they got me ready, they did what they had to do. It was a miscarriage. And um, as I'm preparing to leave, because now I'm getting dressed, you know, I'm putting my pants, my bloody pants back on, and I'm about to wrap my jacket around my, my bottom part and just go get back in my car, go home and change, go back to work. 
That's all I know. And the doctor stopped me and said, hey, 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 I need you to hang out for a minute. I put in a call for an oncologist. Can you hang out for a second? And I'm like, no, dude, my granny just died this morning. I just had a miscarriage. I need to go home. I have a funeral to plan. What is it that you want? And he said, well, when we did your procedure, we noticed your cell growth looks a little weird. Now I'm very irritated because it's like, dude, talk to me as if I did not attend medical school. I work in a gas station. Give it to me in layman's terms because I'm dealing with a lot of stuff right now. And he just kept saying, you know, he really would want me to wait for the oncologist. They could explain it better. So finally, I just screamed at him. Dude, I just lost my grandmother and I just lost the baby of my rapist. Can you please tell me what the heck you want with me? Although I'm sure there probably were some expletives mixed in there. And he looked me dead in my eyes and said the three words, three or four words that would forever change my life. And they were, I think you have cancer. And my world stopped. I looked at the doctor and I told him, I said, you know what? That's not in my day planner. I, I, I don't have cancer on any of these pages. I got stuff to do. And I'm crying. And he's like, ma'am, 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 would you please just wait? Let me talk to you. And I'm like, no, no, no. What you're going to do? And the military kicked in. You're going to give me your card. I'm going to go home and take care of my family. I'm going to take care of my work situation. I'm going to get my health together. And then I'm going to call you. I'm going to call you in exactly 14 days. And we can discuss whatever you want to discuss in 14 days. But right now, I can't do any of that. I, I can't function. Like I was in the mindset state that I literally just wanted to go drive into traffic. That in itself was, in my opinion, those three events, they were cataclysmic. But at the same time, the number one most negative event in my life which was being violated in a way that no human being should ever be violated, turned out to actually be the best moment of my life. Because if that guy had not saw fit to take advantage of me, I would have never gotten pregnant and subsequently lost the baby and discovered that I had stage one ovarian cancer. And people say, well, wait a minute. Now, now we believe in putting a silver lining on everything. But how could being raped be a good thing? And the good part about it was the proverbial silver lining was the fact that 98%, a little bit over 98% of women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer are diagnosed in stage four because there is no pain, there is no symptoms, and there is no test for it. So because he raped me and I had the miscarriage and had to have the procedure that they did, they discovered my cancer in stage one, in which I was able to treat it aggressively, beat it, and I've since beat it three different times. So I remember that doctor telling me back in 2000 that, you know, he'd give me, you know, 10 years or so. Well, it's 20 years later and I am completely cancer free. So I definitely think that my life changing moment as with any human being would be being violated but it also went from being something so horrific to actually being my saving grace. Wow. So. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> an intense story. You were right. Let me ask you something that was kind of unclear. 
you said that uh, the last thing you remembered, it was 2.35 in the morning, and then you woke up in the hospital. Did, well, I woke did he, up in the ambulance. Oh, in the ambulance. What, what did he do? Did he hit you in the head or something? Or well, did, well, from what they said, I had ligature marks around my neck. So what they think he did is when he walked past me to go to the bathroom, my back was to him. They think he put something over my, over my head and choked me out. Oh, this is horrible. And, and did they ever yeah. find him? No, 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 they did not. So it's been 20 years and it's still, he's still out there. It, it's been 20 years, yeah. It, we, we came to find out that I could have sued the company because they didn't do the proper background checks. Like in retail, they say they do a background check, but most times they're only looking for like retail theft or theft over $500. It turns out from what I found out from my private investigator that I hired, this guy before I hired him had only been out of jail for six months for sexual assault on a girlfriend. Wow. What yeah. a mess. What a mess. Well, I'm so glad that your story, you know, as harrowing as it was, turned out f better for you since you were able to find the cancer and, mm -hmm. and, and get it treated. Now, you said you, you relapsed three times with cancer. Was it all? Yeah. Over um, I, um, twice was ovarian and the most recent was two years ago. It was bladder. Did you ever have, have any surgeries for that? I mean... I had a partial hysterectomy, and then I haven't had any other surgeries. I just did in intensive chemotherapy. I did chemo almost eight years, and wow. um, I did a lot of radiation in between as preventive measures because um, my doctors tell me, they laugh at me, but because I'm so resilient, I'm also very, very driven, and they tell me, well, you know, you're a type A personality and stress levels. I didn't realize this until I hit my 40s that stress levels can actually make cancer cells grow. Because it's almost like an infection that's already in your body when you're born. It just chooses when and how it's gonna mutate. So the more I worked myself, the more I stressed myself out, the more likely it was that my cancer would make a reoccurrence. So it was definitely there before the attack and then? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. The, like, like, they, like the doctor told me, that for me, the, the saving grace was simply thinking when he told me, well, ma'am, you're only 24 years old. If we had let this go, had we not caught this, had you not gotten pregnant and had all the stuff that went on after that, you probably would have made it to about 27, 28 and would have just been walking around one day and died. He was like, ovarian cancer really is a silent killer because there's no pain. Like with other type of cancers, there's no lump you can find because you can't feel your you can't feel your ovaries. Um, so there's no discomfort. There's nothing, and you would think that they develop a test for it, and hopefully one's on the way. But um, that's what made it so life changing for me because had he not done that, I would have happily went on my way, and my son probably would be without a mother right now. Is that not something that gynecologists check? Um, well, yeah, when they, well, see, here, here's a common misconception. People say, well, don't you ladies get your stuff checked every year? The pap smear. The pap smear is for cervical cancer. Um, it cannot detect ovarian. And because the way that your ovary, ovaries are situated in your body, you can't reach them. Like, you can't stick something and reach them. They're just in there. And so unless there's something going on in which like when you have a miscarriage and they have to like scrape tubes and stuff like that, 
that's when they start getting cell growth back. And then, then that, and the cells as they pass through during a miscarriage is when they noticed the cells were different, that they didn't look. I forget how he describes it. He said they were almost flower-like. And I guess they're supposed to look like just perfect spears or something. Yeah. Um, okay, let's, let's move on to your career as a writer. Uh, mm-hmm. Was your, did that begin before the incident or was that uh, something that came about because of the incident or? Oh, it was, it was, I wrote my first book years after, years, years after. Um, but it was a fire that was started in me with that. Um, for a number of years, I was completely oblivious to what happened. I knew how my body felt. I knew what went on with my body. But the one thing I never faced was what exactly happened. So um, my dad read a lot. My father read incessantly. So I picked up a love for reading. And I, he used to always tell me, you know, there's a story inside of you. There is something behind your eyes that you got to tell the world. And I would laugh him off. Well, after that, and I found out I had cancer, you know, you start to deal with your own mortality. And being in your 20s, dealing with mortality with a small baby, it gets you to thinking. So I actually started writing poetry um, because I would go through bouts of depression. Um, I had periods of time in which I didn't sleep. I wouldn't sleep for days on end. Like my father would literally have to give me a tranquilizer to make me go to sleep because stuff would happen in my dreams. So I started writing as a way to rid myself of what I like to call darkness. That's what I call depression. It's just darkness. And um, I would write to make it go away. And I would write and it would go away and I would make up little stories and I would tell my family these little stories at Thanksgiving and stuff like that. And they wouldn't be really heavy stories. They would just be, you know, just little random flights of fancy. But that's where it took root because I felt like this guy could have took me out. I could have died. What have I done? And I know like, you know, the younger generations now, they don't think about that. But I think about that. What was my imprint upon the world? What did I leave? How would anybody know I was here? And that's when I said, okay, I'm gonna write a book. I'm gonna tell my story. And I wrote my first book like 14 years later. Well, I started it five years later, but you know, life happens, being sick and raising a kid. I kept just putting it off. I'd save the file, save the file, save the notebook. And then finally, um, when I beat cancer a second time, I said, you know what? It was like early 2014. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna finish this book. I'm gonna finish it. And I was only intending to write one book and it was just gonna be a tale of triumph because I felt like because I put a silver lining on everything, I could tell a story that was harrowing but it still had some type of happily ever after. Although I don't believe in princesses and Prince Charmings, I could give you a really gritty tale full of twists and turns and stuff you didn't expect from these people, but still manage to give them their version of a happily ever after. And um, that's what I set out to do. And my very first book was like 80% my life story. And the rape was included in there, but it was twisted a different way. And um, I, I like to call my first book a fictionalized memoir. Like, it's my story. It, it, it's my drive and my determination and my heart and some aspects of my life. But then you sprinkle in a little fiction because you don't want to upset people or get too many details about stuff. 
you know so um that that's that's how i finally made up my mind to do the writing thing what was the name of this first book um birth a very funny title birth of the mistress and um i have to throw in a disclaimer people think mistress and they think oh she's the other woman oh no because of what i've been through and the kind of person that i am every last one of my novels is written from the perspective of an alpha female so her title mistress is because she's actually a dominatrix okay so uh you now you've written more than one book why don't you tell us a little bit about the other books you've written um, well, I have one trilogy. Um, so three of the books, it's Birth of the Mistress, Evolution of the Mistress, and Taming of the Mistress. And they follow one main character and her family and her loved ones going over her life, her trials and tribulations from being abused to being sexually assaulted. Um, my books deal with a lot of taboo subjects. Um, because I feel like in certain communities, in certain cultures, certain things aren't talked about. So I wanted to write great stories. I wanted to write love stories, um, romance, but I also wanted to hit on those titular things that people don't talk about, like parental abuse and rape and um, same-sex sexual assault, uh, mental illness. I, I hit on all those different themes. My other two novels were standalones, and um, one was entitled Careful What You Wish For, which was more or less a cautionary tale, just like the title, Be Careful What You Wish For, because all that glitters isn't gold. And um, my fifth and final novel uh, was only finished at the behest of my father, uh, who was, he, he was battling cancer at the time that I was finishing writing my last novel. And I, I just wanted to give up on writing. And he literally told me, you promised. You said you were going to finish it. I still have to read it. And then he passed away on me. But my friends and family kept pushing me. You know, your dad wants this book. He can read it in heaven. Your dad wants this book. So my final book was about, um, it's called BFFs. Um, best friends well best effing friends and um it's about a very interesting love triangle or love square um all of my stories are built around love and the perception of it and the pursuit of it and how different things twist and turn in different people's lives to get them to either their happily ever after or their misery do you have a partner in life now no, I do not. I am actually single. I'm going through a divorce. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. The, the, I think being married to a writer is not healthy for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you also mentioned uh, before we started recording that you are a wedding planner. Um, I am. <laughs> and that seems like something that would be very stressful. So how, does, how do you deal with that? Um, well, one of, one of my strengths, I would have to say, or one of my interests has always been psychology. I used to want to be a profiler back in the day before life happened and I got too old for the FBI. Um, so I decided to get a degree in psychology and then people say, well, that's a waste of money if you're going to be a wedding planner. I discovered at 17 that I had a flair for planning weddings and I got paid for planning a wedding at 17 for a friend's mom. So 20 years ago. I threw caution to the wind after my cancer diagnosis, after my granny passed and everything that was going on in my life. And I said, you know what? I don't want to go to work. I want to start my own company. 
And because I would always do the, the setup and design and stuff for all my friends and family birthday parties, somebody getting married at home or doing a little wedding, it's always, Nita, can you come help? Can you do a candy bar? Can you do a backdrop, some centerpieces? So I thought about it. I can parlay this into a business. And it is stressful, but understanding the psychology of people is what gets you through that. How can you get somebody to spend thousands and thousands of dollars for something that's merely a PDA? And people say, wait a minute now, you're a wedding planner. How do you think that? Because it really is. All you need is an efficient and your betrothed to say, I do. We do the whole wedding and the reception and all that so we can show our friends. It's like the pomp and circumstance of a graduation. You could literally mail me my diploma. But because I want to walk across the stage, I'm going to participate. It's the same ideology for a wedding. And um, people have always told me that I just have a really bubbly, goofy personality that people are drawn to. People seem to trust me with the most important day of their life, um, which can be very, very stressful. But it's my job to take the stress off of them, to absorb it into my type A personality, and to just ensure that everything goes smoothly. And I think I've discovered how to do that all the way down to making a girl cry on national TV. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know, they say that, um, that you have bridezillas at, at times when you're dealing with wedding planning. How, have you experienced yeah. that? And, and when, you, when you do, what do you do to kind of diffuse that? Here's the funny thing. I'm, I'm funny. I'm glad that you mentioned that term. Guess what show I was on in 2005? Bridezillas? <laughs> yes. Um, the one time that they filmed in Chicago, um, the producers contacted me because I um, had an ad in the Yellow Pages at, back when there still was a paper Yellow Pages. And they called me like, hey, this is what we do. We've done one season, very high class in New York. We want to film in Chicago. Do you have any clients who fit the bill? At the time, I had three clients on the books. Two of them were super nice. One really was a bridezilla. So I sent her down to do a taped interview. They loved her so much that they extended the shooting schedule a week so that they can include her wedding. Um, and that, that was how I made somebody cry on national TV, one of her bridesmaids. But how do you deal with that? I would say that you deal with it with poise and grace. Um, for like my family members who saw the show, they would call me every week just mad. You want me to slap her? And it's like, guys, the voiceover is done for drama. They cut and edit this together for drama. Like for two episodes, you see a teaser where it looks like she's spazzing out on me. You don't find out until you watch the third episode that she was spazzing out to me about the floral designer. So it's like she wasn't yelling at me, but the way that they cut it made it look more dramatic. Um, the way that I handle people is simple. I'm here to do a job. I'm not here to be your friend. Um, I'm here to facilitate your vision. Whatever you want to come to fruition, what you saw in your mind when you close your eyes and think of your wedding, that's what I'm going to make happen. And I'm going to keep you on budget. I'm going to keep you on a strict timeline. It's going to happen exactly the way you want it to. Just let me do my thing. And in 20 years of doing it, I haven't really ran across that many bridezillas. I just did my 98th wedding back in October of 2019. Uh, in 20 years. I don't do a whole lot of them because I work and write and do other stuff. 
So I just haven't focused on it full time. It's more like a passionate hobby. But I think just being professional with people and standing your ground helps get you through those sticky situations with those Bradzillas. Because really all they're looking for is like a kid throwing a tantrum. They just want a little reassurance that everything's going to be okay. Yeah, well, they're pretty nervous themselves. I imagine they're, you know, because like you said, this is the most important day of their life. And, and if they don't feel like they're in control, maybe that's what causes them to kind of go into the Bridezilla role. Mm-hmm. Now, some of them, they're just, ugh. They're just, like, as the seasons went on, I think the show finally stopped when it got to 10 seasons. I want to say about the fourth or fifth season, it was so full of drama that you could tell that this stuff was staged. You know, reality TV really is not reality. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. (laughs) Well, um, did you see a bump in in business when you were on the show? Um, I did, but not so much so that I was booking clients hand over foot simply because that show, my dad's philosophy was any advertising is good advertising. I don't feel the same way because I feel like shows like that are geared towards the drama that people really aren't checking because that particular season, my client was the only one on the show that had a full-time wedding planner. One of the other girls had a day of, but I had been with this girl for almost 18 months from start to finish. And a lot of people, they liked it. You know, I, I booked a lot of parties after that, but weddings are kind of like something you have to experience to want that person. And on TV, you really only see, like, you know, you only, I think they only showed like 10 minutes of the actual wedding itself. And it was phenomenal. So people who knew me recommended me to people and then, you know, referred them to the TV show. And they're like, oh, she's famous. Like, uh, it's reality TV. No, I'm not. But um, you don't get many repeat customers as a wedding planner. So you definitely have to make sure whatever face you show to the world is one of the best ones. So I saw I saw a bump in business in interest. But as far as book clients, it really didn't affect me positively or negatively. Well, let's see, your your son is now in his 20s, right? I mean, he's... Yeah, 26. 26. So um, how is that going? You, he's, is he out of, the, out of the nest and family of his yes. own? Yes. Um, he's a psychopath. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he, he is 26 and the father of three. And um, him and his fiance, they literally... He, he's such a mama's boy. They literally live 10 minutes away from me. Um. But I, I see them often. I, I probably see them too often. But as long as I get to see my grandbabies, then, you know, I keep that legacy going. But he, he's a good young man. Um, he knows the things that his mom has been through. And he's been there with me fighting every step of the way. Uh, my, dad, my dad didn't believe in lying to children. So one day my son asked him when he was like six or seven years old, why does mommy sleep so much? And my dad, I didn't agree with him, but I understand why my dad did it. He just blurted out and told him, baby, your mom's in chemotherapy. Well, what's that? Well, they have to put medicine in her body and the medicine makes her sleepy. Well, why does she need medicine? Well, because she has cancer. What's cancer? So he literally had this whole dialogue with his little grandson with military precision, explained it to him. My son never cried about it. He never whined about it. The only time I knew that it bothered him is on occasion, I'd get a call from a teacher and she'd say, oh, you know, Miss Johnson, are, are, are you sick? And I'd be like, yeah, why? 
Oh, well, no, because Charles wrote a report and he put in the report that, you know, his mom has cancer. But you're always at all the functions, all the PTA meetings. And I, I just thought maybe he was embellishing. I'm like, no, 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 he's telling the truth. He's telling the truth. I'm like, but I'm good. And then I would talk to him about it. When, whenever a teacher would mention that he wrote about it, you know, I'd always ask him, you okay? You know, you know, mommy's not dying. And he'd speak his concerns based on whatever his age level and comprehension was at the time. Um, he's very fiercely protective. If I so much as sneeze, well, outside of the coronavirus stuff, if I so much as sneeze, he's all over me. Like, mom, you okay? You need to go to the doctor? You know, have you been sick lately? And I'm like, dude, shut up. I'm good. I'm well, good. Sounds, I got stuff to do. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that you have a very supportive family and, mm -hmm. and that it was a good thing that your father was around for as long as he was oh, and help, yeah. you, help you raise your son. Um, so, you know, that's some, some really good positives there that uh, you were, you know, an excellent mom and uh, you have a lot to be proud of, I know. Oh, I, I try. I, I mean, I take joy. I tell people all the time, you know, we forget as we run this race called life, we forget to stop and look as we're running, we're so focused on the finish line that that's the only thing that's enriching to us. What about when you hit mile marker one, when you hit mile marker five, you know, when you beat your expectation and hit mile, mile marker six, you know, we, 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 we get so wrapped up in finishing something that we no longer enjoy the process. So for me, with that happening to me and with dealing with death so early on in my life and other difficulties, it made me more appreciative of the journey itself. So the one thing in my life that I'm most proudest of is the fact that I've been through stuff that would put most people in a padded room. And I still get up and I still make motivational videos and I still speak to groups and I still write books and I still plan weddings. And I think that's a testament to the ideology of it takes a village. You know, that if I didn't have that support system, I probably would be in a padded room somewhere talking to people who weren't there instead of making those characters and putting them on paper. <laughs> yeah, you said just now that you make motivational videos. Uh, is that on YouTube? Um, it's on, it started on YouTube back in 2013. I was calling it um, Notations of a Nappy Girl because I had natural hair. And um, YouTube started having severe uploading issues. And that was around the same time that Facebook came out with the Facebook Live feature. So I moved it over to Facebook and I decided if I wanted to reach a larger audience, I'm not even gonna lie, one of my Caucasian friends told me, hey Nita, I watch your videos all the time, but when I try to tell my friends about them and I say notations of a nappy girl, they instantly think it's something ethnic. So you might want to think about that when it comes to branding. I said, hmm, I'll take it into consideration. So what I ended up doing is um, my wedding planning company is called Envious Events, producing events worthy of envy. So then I thought about it. Well, when you envy something, what do you do? You covet it. You want it. You want to do what it takes to get it. So why not envy yourself? which then becomes a competition with yourself. So I came up with the name for my video line of living enviously with the purpose. And I created a Facebook live video series as well as um, I do car chronicles. If I'm in the car, it's called the car chronicles. Um, and it's just my type of motivational life coaching is just basically giving it to you straight, no chaser, no clinical, no degrees on the wall, though I do have a couple of degrees. I just talk 
like you talking to your best girlfriend. Like you just called your sister, like, hey, sis, I got a problem. Let me tell you what's going on. That's the way that I give my advice. Um, I tell people before they watch my videos, I, I do curse. I I'm doing really good today. <laughs> um, I'm like, I do have a potty mouth. Um, but what I'm going to tell you is universally applicable. And it'll have you living your best life so much so that you envy yourself. And um, that's how the whole Live Enviously uh, blog and podcast and all that stuff came about, just based off of the motivational videos and people saying, hey, I, I like the way you talk. Because I kept saying, ah, you'll never get a cable show off of this. And my dad used to always say, why you want to be on cable? I'm like, well, daddy, they sure not going to put me on a major network talking like this. He was like, how do you know? You changed the game. You create, he always taught me to create your own lane. He was like, you have the people that you look up to, the motivational speakers that you love. You know, you can name drop all day. He said, but think about it. There could be a thousand of you guys doing exactly the same thing. And some may do it better than you. Some may do it worse than you. But the one thing none of them can do is do it exactly like you do it. And that's what I decided, and, and, and I took that with me and I ran with it. I don't plan events like anyone else. I don't facilitate events like anyone else. I don't write books like anyone else, which is why I'm probably not sitting on anybody's bestsellers list. Because I write about the stuff that people only whisper about. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't give advice like anybody else does. I have literally tried to create my own niche in everything that I do. So no matter how high up I go, or if I just baseline and stay at the same level, I know I put my all into it and I did it as only I could do it. give a shout out to Ben, the editor of this show. Ben also has a podcast called Two Marks and a Spark. You can find it wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Check it out. You won't be sorry.